This is an ABC podcast. We're losing industry all over the country, and they're moving. They're moving to other places. A lot of them are moving to Mexico. Don't underestimate. It's like the new China uh, on a smaller level, but like the new China. So we will bring our jobs back, Sean. We're going to bring our jobs. As sure as you're sitting there, we are going to bring our jobs back into this country for the first time. It's a popular populist narrative built on people's fears about the offshore outsourcing of jobs and the rise of automation. Those fears may be well placed, but our understanding of the specifics of outsourcing and automation is fuzzy to say the least, blurred by political spin, industry mistruths and media hype. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome as always to Future Tense. The reality, as we'll see, is that the globalised labour market is far more interesting, complicated and messy than one might imagine. Let's start with the labour cost advantage. For decades now, companies in the rich West have been moving their operations to developing countries in order to drive down their labour costs. A country like China, for example, attracted considerable foreign investment because wages were low. But that dynamic has begun to shift. Dr Chris Hartley, Assistant Professor of Asian and Policy Studies at the Education University of Hong Kong. Well, I think labor cost advantage is getting wiped out and automation is one component of that. Of course, there are other forces that are prompting that as well in coastal China as productivity per worker has increased, so too have wages per worker. And that's why we've seen a bit of an exodus of the very low skilled manufacturing jobs from China already and even from Northeast Asia to parts of Southeast Asia where the labor cost structure is is very low. So I think that's certainly one element. It's kind of a natural evolution of uh, incomes gradually increasing, especially in least developed countries. But I also think, of course, that automation is, is certainly playing a big part as well. I mean, obviously, producers face labor costs as one of their most significant input costs. They're interested in replacing those not only with you know, cheaper ways of producing things, but also sort of more reliability, regularity, et cetera, that obviously can be programmed into automation that sort of may take more effort or have less predictability when dealing with humans. So as these jobs kind of move off to Southeast Asia, we have to wonder, and then other parts of the developing world, we have to wonder at what point those countries are going to lose their labor cost advantage. And as uh, we have uh, seen a situation in which those labor cost advantages are actually producing momentary gains for countries. But many of these countries will not see those kind of labor cost advantages in the long run. And we call upon them, therefore, to parlay those momentary advantages and the economic gains from those advantages into investment in education infrastructure and those other types of things that will allow them to capture the mid-level or high-value-added production that they may be competitive for in the future. And yet we know from the experience of, say, India or the Philippines that there are lots of people with high-level degrees who even currently at the moment can't find employment. So a focus on employment and upskilling, as they often say, is not necessarily the full answer, is it? No, absolutely. I mean, you can break down types of skill levels into a variety of different ways. You can think of routine cognitive, routine manual, non-routine cognitive and non-routine manual or whatever types of ways you want to look at that. And it's sort of the the non-routine cognitive jobs that have been increasing uh, since the 90s. 
and the non-routine manual, whereas routine cognitive, both routine types are, have been stagnant. So this is kind of a structural challenge that is not unique to the Western world and certainly in India where increasing percentage of the population is being college educated and is going on to a uh, into a labor market that needs to produce 8 million jobs a year just to maintain current employment levels. The situation is fraught, and uh, we see this in China as well. A college degree is certainly no guarantee of economic mobility, and underemployment will be substantial in places like this. And there's sort of numerous forces that are behind this. And another thing that I, I like to consider in terms of assuming that the market will continue to provide jobs for mid and high skill level are the constraints to growth itself. So the limits to growth include population growth, but also include ecological constraints as well, which I think should be a conversation that's had in conjunction with automation and this whole transformation of labor. Because we can't assume that, as has happened since uh, the early 20th century, that we're going to have the kind of population explosion we had, the kind of explosion in quality of life and coming out of poverty, et cetera. I think the 21st century will be quite a different story. And we have to consider you know, not only sort of the uh, ecological population constraints to that, but we consider the political outcomes of it as well, which is something we're very interested in. In the latest Density of Robot Workers Index released by the IFR, the International Federation of Robotics, South Korea is at the top and the US is at number six. China, often self-described as the world's factory, comes in at number 14. But automation in the People's Republic is rapidly rising, says the IFR's Suzanne Bieler. It's quite way down. It has caught up a lot in the past years. And uh, what comes additionally is that you have many, many workers in manufacturing industry. China has a huge share of workers in manufacturing industry. China has a lot of still manual work. So there's a lot of work still done manually. So the robot density gives you a good feeling how industrialized or how robotized the country is. They are having a huge growth rate overall um, compound annual growth rate in the past five years of 43%. So China, which still benefits to a great extent from having comparatively low wages, is now facing not only its own offshore outsourcing issues, but also significant job losses from increased robotics. The firm position of the International Federation of Robotics is that automation eventually leads to a boost in job creation. And that's a common proposition put forward by those in the tech industry and those involved in producing and promoting robotics. But if there's concrete evidence for that, it's certainly well hidden. On a global scale, Chris Hartley doubts whether it's possible to have exponential automation and still create meaningful future employment opportunities over time. Because a major driver of automation, of course, is the desire to reduce or eliminate labour costs. I don't think it's sustainable, actually. So if we look at the inflection point, say we go back to the, the Luddites and we talk about technology being able to replace jobs done by humans having basic training, we have to think about then further on uh, at what point is automation able to replace jobs with you know sort of high skilled labor? And we've talked about those mid-level ones as a, a lot of discussion has been had around kind of service level jobs, telemarketing, retail, service industries, things like that. But in fact, this uh, automation could you know begin to reach its way into sort of more, skilled, highly skilled jobs, managerial jobs, things like that. So there must be a way to maintain 
at least a baseline uh, quality of life for those who are displaced. And I think that's kind of the next step in the conversation about the impact of automation is how do we forestall the inevitable social and therefore political instability that derives from massive unemployment. And and not only are people, of course, dissatisfied with their ability to maintain their current lifestyle or to improve it, but also you could get to the cognitive or psychological factors of needing to have meaningful work, needing to contribute. And I don't think that the future looks very positive for this. And so when politicians say and others say that the lost jobs can simply result in there will be new jobs, jobs that we haven't thought of or jobs whose titles we haven't even thought of yet, and we'll just simply shift the labor from one to the other and have a little bit of upskilling in the meantime to prepare people for those things. I think that's a very quixotic view. I don't believe that that's actually going to happen at a one-to-one ratio. There will certainly be new work generated by the need to manage and observe and monitor technology itself, but it will not replace in the the right numbers the amount of jobs that have been displaced. And then you look at, of course, the incentives of, of the private sector. The private sector is not interested in social stability, I would argue. Businesses are operating to make money and to reduce the labor cost structure. Uh, whatever happens to the displaced workers is not really a concern of these companies. Of course, I believe that it probably should be in a very longer term perspective because those companies do rely on markets and markets function when people have the ability to participate in them. So massive amounts of unemployment will result in the shrinkage of markets. But at this point, I believe that the managing for now mindset means quick wins, profitability, and uh, the reduction of labor costs. So until businesses are held to account in terms of regulation, or uh, say, as I, I mentioned before, taxing productivity gains from automation, I don't think there's going to be significant movement on this. And especially in the globalized world, they'll just shift their operations to places that will not be restricting the processes of doing that. So I don't believe much movement is going to come from the business side either. Concern over the extent of automation certainly captures headlines. Estimates vary. But some researchers claim up to 47% of current jobs will be automated by 2030. For economist John Quiggan, that sort of estimate seems too pessimistic. When you look at the overall pace of change, it's actually quite slow. What we see unusually in the current period is very rapid change in a very small area, essentially electronics, robotics and communication, combined with near stasis in, in lots of other areas. Our cars don't go any faster than they did 50 years ago. If you look in your kitchen, there's nothing much different from what it was 50 years ago and so forth, whereas obviously electronics have gone on in this massive way. But So there isn't really the kind of rapid technological growth that's displacing workers in large numbers. The overall rate of productivity growth is quite slow. And the second point is that there's nothing in the nature of these technologies which ought to displace workers. Why is it then that we are so fearful of robots taking our jobs? Well, I think it's a convenient fear because when you look at the alternative, it's one that's quite unpalatable. And if we ask why have working conditions, why have wages stagnated, why have working conditions generally got worse, the answer is because policy has been directed to achieve that outcome for the past 30 or 40 years, which embraces governments of both political parties and really says that uh, the problem is in the system rather than the technology. John Quiggan from the University of Queensland. A key determinant of the impact automation will have on the labour market of the future is AI. For robotics to displace humans en masse, 
the artificial intelligence required will need to be highly sophisticated, able to perform complex, non-repetitive tasks. But the University of Melbourne's Tim Miller isn't convinced the technology is anywhere near that stage. The reason I doubt the hype is because in technology, but it seems especially in artificial intelligence, we have this habit of extrapolating the most recent breakthrough into the future and just saying, oh, if we just keep improving at the same rate we have as in the last five years, in 30 years, we'll be able to reason as smart as a human. And we've seen many people make that claim over the last, let's say, 60 years, and it's always 30 years out. The artificial intelligence community is starting to turn on this. I think people are starting to have doubts and are starting to be more moderated in the in the types of claims they're making. Self-driving cars is a great example. We, we were going to have self-driving cars by 2015 on the streets of Australia. Then it was 2018. Now, you know, Elon Musk thinks that we're going to have automated uh, self-driving cars doing taxi deliveries by 2020, but most other self-driving car companies are starting to say, well, we're just looking to help a driver out now by adding new safety features that will break automatically if, if it needs to. And really, there's nobody predicting self-driving cars on the streets of Australia before about 2050. The important thing to think about with artificial intelligence, the most recent breakthroughs haven't really been anything in, in the theory of artificial intelligence. It's really been, firstly, the availability of data, thanks to the internet. It's much easier to get data to train modern machine learning algorithms. And also this idea of cloud computing, which is where you don't run a program on your computer, you run it on someone else's computer like Amazon or Google who have these big cloud centers and just the the ability to now be able to process a large amount of data in a few days, which previously would have cost millions of dollars for a single company to do. Those have been the two major breakthroughs. The big sort of theoretical breakthrough that came through that is the hype right now called deep learning. The most recent breakthrough came in 1986, but it was just the arrival of data and computation that led it to be here. So I don't really see that anything huge has happened in the last few years. But if you look at artificial intelligence, it's really very brittle. It's very good at doing one very specific thing that it's trained on. And to give you an example, maybe I'll use a robotic sample more. Let's think of manufacturing. Robotics has worked quite well in certain types of manufacturing, but it only really works well is if something goes wrong, you can stop the manufacturing process and you can sort of reset what you're doing, right? So effectively, you control the environment for the robotic systems. Whereas when you think think of things like self-driving cars, we can't control the environment, we can't stop and reset. So when something goes wrong, something really drastic can go wrong. And we see that with the same with modern artificial intelligence. It's good at doing one very specific thing, but the second it gets something that's slightly outside of what it's been trained for, it doesn't just not do a very good job, it fails drastically. And I think it's very important to think about not just what are the tasks that I'm doing that can be automated, but what can go wrong while I'm doing this and how easy it is for a human to say, oh, that just went wrong. So for example, if you think about automating takeaway restaurants like McDonald's, fast food restaurants, probably, yes, automation can do 80% of those jobs there. But the second a bit of oil falls on the floor and you need someone to clean it up, well, the person that's built on the floor can just turn around and clean it up very quickly. But the oil pouring robot is not designed to do that. All these types of little things that we can just do very easily, very naturally, can't be done unless it's explicitly programmed in. Now, you make the point that we often ask the wrong question about automation, that asking what will computers not be able to do isn't the most useful way of looking at the issue. What should we be asking? 
we can ask the question, what won't computers be able to do? But it just turns out that's really hard to answer, right? As Niels Bohr, the famous physicist said, prediction is very hard, especially about the future. And we we see people making predictions about technology all the time. It turns out it's really, really hard to make the decisions about what things will do well. So if you look back around about 30 years, while well, computers were never going to be able to play chess, and then IBM wrote Deep Blue, which which beat Gary Kasparov. So then it became, well, they'll never be able to play Go. And now Google have a, a famous Go playing agent that beat Lisa Doll, the world champion in Go. So these, these are really hard predictions to make. So instead of trying to make those types of predictions, why don't we just say, what simply won't we let computers do? And there are certain careers where you just simply won't replace a person with a robot. For example, childcare, you simply won't put your child in the care of a robot. That's not to say there couldn't be some assistance given with artificial intelligence and robotics, but there will always be human childcare workers. As an AI researcher, do you worry about automation and the future? Do I worry about it? My biggest worry right now is, as an AI researcher, is the hype that's around it. In the last 30 years, we've had two, maybe three, you could say, what are called AI winters, where artificial intelligence was hyped up to the point where it was going to replace humans, and then it turned out it didn't quite live up to the height, and all of a sudden funding dropped off for people like me, and the sort of confidence fell out of the industry. And I think that's what worries me personally as a researcher, but as sort of replacing a lot of jobs, I think there are certain jobs that will be replaced. Or at least there will be certain jobs where so many tasks will be replaced that you'll need less people to do that. And that's what I see would be the biggest impact. And I don't worry so much about automation taking jobs away. It's really that if it happens very quickly and you have entire industries that are devastated, I think if it happens over a long time, such as what we've seen in things like agriculture over the last maybe 100 years, I think that's that's a great improvement to have less people doing agriculture and doing other things instead that we couldn't have imagined 100 years ago you know, sort of having less people doing that and doing other, like, I guess you could say knowledge-based jobs. But I don't really, I don't really worry about automation slowly taking over. I think that's probably a positive thing. What I can see on the horizon for the next maybe 20 or 30 years with artificial intelligence and automation is not being replaced, but just as part of an everyday, you know, most careers have a series of, of things they'd have to do, a series of tasks they do, is some of those tasks will be replaced and the nature of the job will change over 20 years. And it probably won't change so quickly that it's going to have a devastating effect in most careers. But, you know, I I can't rule out that it won't happen very quickly for some. You're listening to Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell. The challenges of the future. Today, automation and offshore outsourcing, or offshoring for short. When we talk about offshoring, we usually focus on what is called north-south offshoring, or when developed countries invest into developing countries. However, the largest volume of offshoring happens between developed countries. Vladimir Tshelnikov from the School of Economics at the University of Sydney. We can think about Airbus where Europe is producing Airbus and it's like all the countries basically in Europe are involved there. It's a lot of collaboration in terms of R&D. It's mostly high-skilled offshoring. So the narrative that many of us have in our heads of the way in which offshore outsourcing occurs is not necessarily correct. It can be quite deceptive, this idea that jobs are leaving developed countries to go to less developed countries. Yes, I guess the better way to think about offshoring is that the world is just more interconnected more than ever. There is a lot more about offshoring beyond just a simple cost differential. 
One reason why goods or tasks are performed in foreign countries is proximity to foreign consumers. If we talk about large corporations, they might want to perform some operations closer to their consumer markets. That allows them to react to demand shocks faster and to make some small differences in design to feed their product better for the local market. Trying to prevent domestic firms from offshoring means that they're going to be excluded from global value chains. They will lose cost advantage compared to foreign firms. And there is some evidence that firms that are engaged in offshoring then actually expand their employment at home. They change the composition of tasks that are performed at home and abroad, but lower cost of operations that are performed in foreign countries give them some cost advantage that allows them to expand. Another interesting aspect is, in a sense, offshoring is competing with automation. If a company cannot offshore, it does not have access to this cheaper labor, it has higher incentives to automate its production because both automation, offshoring, and actually migration, they're doing the same thing. They allow a company to replace more expensive domestic workers with some cheaper alternative. Vladimir Toshelnikov from the University of Sydney. Another often incorrectly perceived aspect of outsourcing relates to work type. Conventional wisdom suggests that the work that's currently vulnerable to being outsourced overseas is of a highly repetitive, low-skilled nature, and that jobs that involve personal interaction, creativity and face-to-face contact are safe. Well, not always, says our final guest Fiona, an events consultant and business and relationship manager. She found out the hard way. With event management and then in my more recent role being, you know, business administration as well as event project management, I did a lot with clients. I was I was client facing. I was project managing things where I really needed to have interface with suppliers, with clients, with stakeholders on the business. I guess I felt it was uh, it was inevitable that that would remain in that safe space. But obviously, the job does have a lot of administrative side to it so and that seems to be where they've decided they're going to automate so, so yeah. the, the personal dimension really you thought was was something that that couldn't really be outsourced overseas yes personal and also the actual skill levels how surprised were you when you were let go by the time i was actually let go i realized that the writing was on the wall i watched it happen before me i watched my employer employ somebody in the Philippines. I watched that they wanted me to then train that person. Then I was suddenly passing over more than I thought was, you know, usual in terms of my day-to-day tasks, but they weren't actually giving me more responsibilities to take on. So by the time it actually happened, I I had actually said to my husband, you know, oh, uh, I think I'm being made redundant. And so sure enough, that happened. So some weeks after this lady in the Philippines was taken on, I was then let go. And I, by that stage, I kind of knew the writing was on the wall. I think the other thing was as well, just to sort of take the, on the personal side of it, the company, and it was just a small company, but they did a lot of research into making sure that the people they employed in the Philippines were being treated well. 
And so it was somewhat ironic <laughs> that they then made me redundant. I was like, where's the integrity in that? You know, they were absolutely adamant that the agency that they would use would pay the people well, that their conditions of work would be good, that they would have pretty much the same rights as, as an Australian employee. And then suddenly they're getting rid of an Australian employee as a result. So, yeah, that didn't sit very well with me, I have to say. What was in it for your former employer? Why do you think they went down that path? Totally cost. It was absolutely a money decision. And that's really why I can't blame them. I mean, the salaries are between a quarter and a third for the equivalent job. They're saving huge amounts of money by employing people through agencies in the Philippines where... And a lot of these agencies are actually Australian agencies that just have their workforce that they source in the Philippines. And so it's cost factor, absolutely. Now, you met the person who replaced you. In fact, as you said, you, you trained them in a sense. Yeah, uh, uh, online. So online. via Zoom, yes. yeah. What sort of skills did that person have? Top-notch skills. I mean, she was degree qualified. She had a lot of business administration experience. She was absolutely fluent in English with virtually no trace of an accent. She was very tech savvy. In fact, you know, that's an area that astounded me. You know, these the workforce that are coming out of the universities, a lot of them are coming out with absolute top-notch skills, whether it's administration, whether it's business management, design skills, marketing skills. So in this type of outsourcing, yes, there's a, a financial imperative, mm. but that doesn't necessarily mean a drop in, in standards in terms of the employee. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. And I think that's where we need to look at this issue, where we need to open up the conversation, because really, you know, you've got a situation where they're almost getting like for like, but that's actually causing a huge issue in Australia in terms of the people they're having to let go. From the perspective of Australian businesses, there's actually people running business tours to the Philippines, how to set up a particularly small businesses where you can use an entire Philippines you know, workforce at a vastly reduced cost. But the other thing that's interesting is there's training for the workforce over in the Philippines. So part of their degree when they complete a university degree is to learn how to be an outsourced worker. And very specific training on, you know, what you would need to know for that. So not just from a cultural perspective, but just from the practicalities of working as an outsourced worker for an Australian company. That's actually part of their degree in a lot of cases, which is really interesting. What's the lesson from this, do you think? What's the message that you want to get across from your experience? Well, I think it's fair to say, you know, I, I, I don't know of any solutions, but I really think we need to open up the discussion because I don't think it's being addressed. I think we need to, well, obviously the government needs to look at it because the people that are being let go as a result of this, you know, are a burden on the system, whether that's short term, medium term or long term. I think we need to put a personal face on these people. These are all people who are losing their livelihoods, who have families to support and they're Australian workers. I think as well, though, we need to extend it beyond that and, and look at how we're addressing the issues when it comes to education. You know, in universities, the actual business workforce itself, how is that morphing? How is that developing? If this is a reality, if we are going to be outsourcing, you know, the more administrative-based tasks or 
effectively anything where anyone sits at a desk can be can be outsourced, then let's look at how we're developing the next generation of workforce and where that's going to go. We also, I think, need to look at some kind of remuneration that is paid by the companies who are doing this. So because the government is losing taxes because of this, where's the balance? It's not an e- even playing field at the moment for Australian workers competing with Philippine or Indian workers. So the playing field needs to be evened out and whether that's some kind of tax that the companies have to pay that would have been, I don't know, the equivalent of the tax that an Australian national would have paid for that job, or I don't really know, I don't have a solution, but I just think that we need to discuss it. It needs to be opened up and we need to start talking about it from a political and a social perspective as well. Issues around outsourcing and automation. Remember, this program is available to hear again from the Future Tense website or wherever you source your favourite podcasts. Edwina Stott was the producer. I'm Anthony Fennell. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.